Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Sanja Ardwin, assistant professor at Appalachian State University as our guest. Sanja, thank you for joining the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Before we get into your work and career, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? So hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you want to share. Yeah, absolutely. Well, most of my hobbies um, have sort of been on pause because of the pandemic. Uh, I love to travel, which actually was, I'm going to say recent. It's been like half my life ago at this point, but um, I didn't get on a plane until I was 21 uh, and because a student organization sent me somewhere in college and from there sort of really got this like travel bug. And so I've been sort of exploring that in this sort of second half of my life since college um, and going places. But I have thought about like, how do I morph that in this time? Um, and so I've really started to think of ways like, how do I become a tourist is a strong word, but how do I become a tourist in my own town? And so um, I've been going to the park next to my house a lot. Uh, we had a new restaurant open and they're pretty good with protocols. And so we've gone there and um, there was a new like, literal hole in the wall uh, bar that opened up. And so we waited until like 2 p.m. on a, like a day to go. So there was nobody else. And um, so really trying to reinvent that, like you can still have different kinds of experiences in your own space. That's like local and walkable even uh, to our house. So that's one thing. Uh, reading, I love to do. I got that from my grandmother. She used to take me to the library as a kid all the time, particularly in the summers. Um, and while our library was closed because of COVID and renovations and things like that, there was a local bookstore um, in Boone where I teach at uh, near App State um, and uh, Foggy, Foggy Pine Books is the name of the bookstore. And they were trying to stay open. Uh, and so they were doing these mystery boxes. And so you could tell them sort of what you like to read in the past and those sorts of things. And they'll send you like a mystery box of books, which I thought was so fun. It was a great way to support them. Um, they actually were on Jimmy Fallon. They got like a promo there too. But they, um, so I got two of those mystery boxes and read those books. And then one of my colleagues got one of the boxes and then we traded books. And so uh, what I've read most recently, um, and I love to read like young adult novels and things like that. Like that's like my pleasure reading. Uh, I read a book called The Midnight Library, which was fantastic. Um, and then I'm halfway through another book called uh, When We Were Vikings. Um, and so they're just, I think like easy reads, but I think a lot of them do have like social justice elements to them and like other things that I thought we could use these things in class, these books in class. Uh, even though they're sort of like pleasure and easy reads for me um, in terms of like speed reading and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of watching, I don't, I'm not a big like podcaster, like music is my jam. So like I have been doing lots of Spotify playlists. So I appreciate the curation of other people's work. Uh, I also really love live music, but that hasn't been happening. So Spotify has sort of been my way to explore new music uh, during this time. Wonderful. Um, so that's, that's the you. Yes. And how about the you in work? What has your journey been like into the position that you hold right now? Yeah, it's sort of been um, a meandering route, I would say. So um, I'm a first generation college graduate um, and going into college, I really thought you did three things, teacher, doctor, lawyer. Like that's what I thought people went to college to do. Um, and process of elimination, blood and guts didn't work for me, didn't like needles. So med was out. Um, I worked for the local town lawyer in my small home community and did everything like he took me to bankruptcy court and all kinds of things. I was like, this is not fun. Uh, so that was out. And so that left me with teacher. So uh, I majored in education. I never changed my major. I was steadfast. I think I'm one of the few people who like never, like never, like I've never changed my major ever. Um, and so uh, really found my route through education, but 
as a college student, like many people in student affairs, uh, sort of had that moment uh, as an involved student where somebody said to me, have you ever thought about doing this, right? And I hadn't thought about doing this, of course, because I didn't know anybody who went to college, really. And so um, being able to, Casey White, Dr. Casey White uh, is her name. And so Casey uh, really sort of ushered me into the field and let me take a class as an undergrad student that sort of propelled my interest in higher ed and student affairs, uh, and then led, led me to Florida State for my master's, which is where she got her doctorate. And so there was those sort of connections uh, there as well. Um, and really loved being a student affairs practitioner. Um, I had some great bosses and you know those sorts of things. Um, and, and I liked the practice. And all along the way I was teaching. So I would teach a first year experience class or a first year seminar or you know all those sorts of things, undergraduate based courses, a leadership class. Um, and when I decided to go back and get my doctorate, uh, I was pretty clear with my faculty at NC State that I did not want to be a faculty member. Um, very clear. In fact, I said it to like one of the Dr. K. Moore, who's one of the women who like led like women in like teaching in higher ed uh, in her class specifically. I remember like standing on a proverbial soapbox and saying how I didn't want to be a faculty member. Um, and all along the way, people had told me like Dr. Schwartz at Florida State and AJ, Dr. Jager at NC State had said to me, I think you can be a faculty member one day. And I'd be like, y'all are bananas. Like this is not happening. Um, and I did like I when I graduated with my PhD, I went back into a practitioner job, but I was still teaching and I was writing some. And I think my challenge was that I had been socialized to believe that you had to write certain things in certain places to a certain frequency uh, to believe you could be a faculty member or that you could only be a faculty member at research one, what I consider big football uh, types of schools. Right. And I didn't think about the other options. Um, but I did find myself, I was working at UNC Wilmington and I found myself doing my full-time practitioner job. I was a director of a unit there um, and teaching three classes one summer or one fall semester. And I said, I'm doing two full-time jobs. Like this is not sustainable. It's not healthy. Um, and so I said, let me try my hand at the faculty market because of how I socialized, didn't think I would do well, um, but actually ended up with an offer at Boston University. And I ended up going there because it was everything I was afraid of. I was afraid of going to the Northeast, being in my entire life in the Southeast. I was afraid of going to a private school because my entire life had been in public education. I was afraid to switch from being a student affairs practitioner where I felt like I'd had some success, right? To being a faculty member, which is a sort of a whole different world. Um, so I went there because I said, if, if I can like do this, everything that I'm sort of afraid of, I probably can be okay sort of in my professional pathway moving forward. And so went to, to BU um, and had a, had a good experience there, but I knew that sort of private elite education was not my space. Like it's not sort of alignment with what I study, who I am, like those sorts of things. And so it's great for some people, right? It's just not, my, it's not for me. Um, and I uh, had an opportunity to come back to North Carolina. My partner is from North Carolina. Um, and so I uh, ended up at App State um, and um, the sort of regional public uh, institution is really a great fit for me in terms of, I love the teaching component that's valued at regional public institutions. I get to write books and book chapters and journal articles and public opinion pieces and things and all of those sort of count. Uh, in my workload and sort of towards my um, promotion and tenure processes. So uh, for me, it's really been an evolution, but teaching and learning has been at the heart of it the whole way. So I feel like teaching and learning is at the heart of my practice as a practitioner. And it's at the heart of my work as a faculty member. And I really do think of my sort of career as a scholar practitioner, or I learned a word recently, uh, I heard for the first time, it's probably just new to me, not other people, but pracademic, also like that word. Um, so scholar practitioner, pracademic, that's really how I view my career pathway. That's great. And you, you've mentioned a few names kind of along your journey, but one of the things that we always talk about is, you know, the student affairs world is a small one. And so just as a possible means of 
helping listeners yeah. connect with you in another way, would you want to highlight someone who has been, and it could be somebody you've already mentioned or somebody you haven't brought up yet, who's been sort of instrumental in your your career or your development within the context of student affairs? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned Dr. Casey White, who really got me into the field. And then uh, Dr. David Pittman, who is at Duke, has been sort of a central feature uh, in my career, but also now my life. He's one of my best friends. So he hired me uh, as a grad assistant in the middle of a year. So I did this weird come in in the middle of a year because I did student teaching as an undergraduate student an extra extra semester, extra football season. Um, and so Pittman really, um, he got me, if that makes any sense. So he also was a first generation college grad. He was from rural North Carolina. I was from rural Louisiana. Uh, we connected a lot, a lot around that. We connected around our social class background. We grew up in working class families and communities. And so um, he explained a lot of things to me. He uh, understood sort of my rough around the edges sort of component and tried to help smooth some of those out a little bit. I mean, one time I remember we were in a committee meeting and he kept um, hash marks for how many times I rolled my eyes in the meeting. And afterwards was like, hey, do you know how many times you rolled your eyes in that meeting? And like, you know, being from South Louisiana, Cajun culture, we talk a lot with our bodies, like we, you know, our hands and our faces. And, and so um, not to, he didn't want to eradicate that from who I was. He wanted to make me aware of what I was telling other people uh, because he, he didn't think I was aware and I really wasn't. Um, and so he continues sort of be a, a sounding board and a, a consistent force in my life, uh, which I really appreciate. And there's tons of other people. I mean, colleagues and students I've worked with who've been so influential uh, recently, I've been part of both the NASPA uh, Emerging Faculty Leader Committee, uh, Early Faculty Leader EFLA, I can't remember what it stands for, uh, and then ACPA's Emerging Scholars, like both of those groups um, of folks have really been like, I don't know what the word, right, what rocks for me in my faculty journey, um, and so those cohorts of folks, but so many people um, that I could name that have been influential, um, people I've learned from and learned with uh, as students and scholar practitioners. Wonderful. Well, let's let's talk more about you since that's what this episode's about. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so you talked about your background. Um, you know, as an undergraduate student, being in education and and pursuing that teacher route. How would you describe your teaching philosophy in your faculty role? Yeah. Absolutely. And I thought. I, I, you know, it's interesting because uh, I think about this every year around this time because of evaluations and like student evaluations of us and uh, what that tells me about my teaching versus what I think about my teaching. Um, and some of the things are consistent. And so this is the ones I'll talk about. But um, I think one is that I expect great things. And so that means I have a high expectations from students. That means I have high expectations of myself. Uh, that means I will push people because I know that they have room to grow. Um, and sometimes that growth is an inch and sometimes the growth is a mile and that's fine. Um, but I know they have the capability, you know, we admitted them into graduate school, they have had great experiences. And so um, I do expect great things from folks. And I think I see that um, from students on my evaluations as well of the expectations I have for the amount they read and the amount they write and um, the kind of work they produce and the sort of accountability they have. And so I think students appreciate it. Um, not always probably, but I think they appreciate it sometimes. Um, I try to center equity as well. So thinking about, I do teach the social justice course for our program, but I don't think social justice just should show up in that one course. And so how am I infusing that into my intro to student affairs class? How am I thinking about that um, as I create sort of um, with students, their internship experiences, I teach that class as well. And so, um, so thinking about that, but also thinking about 
whose voices do they hear in the classroom? Um, so their own voices, right? Are they using their own voices in the classroom? But then what voices am I infusing as the person who chooses the content for the class? So thinking about documentaries and who they're reading in terms of chapters and articles and books and things like that, um, but also who am I inviting in as sort of guest lecturers and um, pieces of that. And so how do students see themselves uh, in the curriculum? And then how are they exposed to people who are unlike themselves uh, in the curriculum as well? So I think that's important to me. Um, and then I think really the thing that threads it all together is like, I try to keep it real with students. So, you know, sometimes it is, you can do better than this. And sometimes it is, hey, I know that we're in COVID, you're job searching and you have two weeks less of the semester to so just finish. Like it doesn't have to be your best work, right? Just finish. Um, and so really trying to um, prepare them through sort of this instructional pedagogy um, for what they're going to face as scholar practitioners in the field. And so I don't want to um, teach them something all sunshine and roses when it's going to be hard and things are going to be hard. And so uh, that can be case studies or scenarios or when students say, this is how I'd react, I would say, well, what if then this? And they're like, well, Sandra, that, some, they said to me, well, that's too hard, Sandra. And I was like, well, do you want to do this work or do you not? Um, and so how do we sort of keep it real uh, in that process? So I would say those things, like expect great things, center equity and keep it real. That's great. Um, you mentioned course evaluations and student feedback. Is there something along your, your experience as a faculty member that came through in an evaluation that you were like, wow, that, and it could be positive, it could be critique, but something that really made you either understand how you were doing the work or gave you a new way of looking at the teaching aspect of your job. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, um, I think it was last semester, I'm pretty sure it was last semester, um, in a first year, I was teaching a first year class uh, for our first year cohort and I got feedback from them. And I do informal evaluations where I actually get more about the class content because our formal evaluations are not as specific. Um, and so, uh, but it shows up in both places, but one of the students said, um, that multiple students said they really appreciated the amount of feedback I give them. But one student said, Sandra never makes me feel wrong. She just offers me new things to think about. Um, and so I thought, Oh, that's fantastic. Like, that's what I'm trying to do, right? That like, I'm trying not to say you're wrong and you're right, or this is, it's this way or that way, right? There's a lot of gray. Um, and so how do we help students explore the gray? But the feedback around the feedback, that they appreciate my feedback, uh, sort of meta there, but is, um, it's helpful because I feel like I have so much um, from sort of faculty colleagues and like professional development I've been as part of as a faculty that says, you know, don't spend a lot of your time on grading, like take, take 15 minutes of paper, like there's all these sort of rules to try to help you grade less, or like take less time grading, not grade less, take less time grading. And I just haven't, I just haven't got there in the however many years, six, seven years, I've been a faculty member. And then the time before that, when I was part-time faculty member, it just takes me forever. I spend so much time. But when I hear that feedback from students, I say, it's worth the time, mm -hmm. right? Because that is where the learning is happening. They learn in the classroom, yes, but they learn because I have them produce consistent assignments and I give them feedback on those assignments and I give them ample feedback and they actually read it. Like that was the other thing that was sort of surprising to me in the evaluation it was like, oh my gosh, they're reading all the feedback. Like it is worth sort of the time and effort and it is a critical part to their learning. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I also, I appreciate what you're saying about the grading part because for me, I find if I get bored with the grading I probably need to change up the assignment a little bit because if I'm bored reading it, they yes. probably weren't excited writing it and there's probably a better way to get at it. So yeah, um, yeah. I think too, the other thing, Michelle, is like 
because these students take multiple classes with me, how am I switching things up so that it's not born for both of us? Because if you're taking me for multiple classes, then if all my assignments are the same throughout the classes, then you're really not learning anything new. And I don't know that I'm, I mean, the content may be different in terms of like the topical area and things like that. But if I always have you do a paper about this, um, I'm having students right now do they're writing a curriculum guide as if they were going to do a training and somebody else would pick up the curriculum guide and be able to do the training. Um, and they're like, it's such a different type of writing, Sanja. And I'm like, yeah, and you're going to have to do this kind of writing in your practitioner roles. And so um, how are we also teaching them different things? Because writing an academic paper is fine, but how much are you going to do that in your right. job if you're not a faculty member? Not a lot. And so how are we teaching them different kinds of skills as well through their assignments? No, that's great. Because if we're asking them to take risks, we need to take risks too. And um, I try to be pretty transparent and say, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's see what happens. We'll learn something from it. So, and taking great. your feedback too, because I um, I had to do this assignment, and um, at the end, it was like a three phase assignment. At the end of the assignment, I said to them in our class session, I was like, "Tell me about it. Was it good? Did you learn stuff? Should I do this again? Should I not do this again? Should we modify it?" Um, and they gave good feedback on here's what works, here's what maybe needs to be shifted. Um, and so letting them see too that we're human and we're just, we're learning too, like we're trying stuff out. Um, and sometimes it lands and sometimes it fails and that's okay. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a parallel too between, you know, students reading the feedback that we give. I just can't stress enough to them. And this isn't going to be true for every faculty member everywhere. But most of us really do read the feedback that they have, or we, when we ask, we're not just saying, wanting them to say, oh, it was great. No, really, how is this going to be helpful to you? So yeah, exactly. um, that sort of partnership in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So let's shift a little bit to your research. So how, and there may be points of intersection with your teaching, but what, what are your research areas? Um, I mean, I think people know some of what you do, but how do you talk about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I really uh, sort of think of it, I don't even know if I think of it in three buckets. That's how they want you to say about it. Um, I, I, um, I really started sort of my research journey, really focused on like college access and success, and particularly for first-generation college students, students from rural areas, and students from poor and working class backgrounds, because I identify in all of those ways, right? And so I think, what, 10, 10, 12, I don't know, years ago when I started, started the doctoral journey, people called it me search in like a way that was talking down to people. Mm. Um, and I really think that has shifted a little bit. At least that's what I, I feel like, at least in the sort of scholar circles that I'm a part of, that people are saying, yeah, who better to study these populations than people who um, hold these identities? And so I'm, I'm appreciative that that is, um, or at least I'm beginning to see a shift in some of that uh, in the field. Um, and some of those areas have really blossomed. So like first-generation college student research 10 years ago, 12 years ago, was pretty sparse and now it's like boom like it's everywhere right um, which is fantastic um, other areas like around rural components are starting to there are more and more doc students who are studying rurality um, and so we're starting to see and part of that is um, really from a business lens from colleges and universities that they're trying to recruit more rural students so they want to know more about them but um, so that is sort of an area for me as well um, and now I, I live back in a rural area in a small town and so uh, that's ever present sort of in my space too um, and then uh, poor and working class students or social class identity. I look at that from the student lens and also from the uh, sort of faculty and staff lens too. So that's expanded a little bit. Um, again, there are more folks starting to study it, but still an under, um, significantly understudied sort of area. 
Um, and I've been able to partner with some fantastic folks on sort of all three of those areas. So um, that's been fun. And then uh, sort of the second bucket, if you will, um, is around career preparation and pathways for higher ed and student affairs. So that my first book uh, was around that and been able to extend some of that research um, with Becky Crandall and Jeremiah Shin. And so that's been fun. And hopefully we'll be doing some more in that area. Um, and then sort of the, the third piece um, is around sort of leadership. Um, and so, but really with the intersection of like leadership and freshman or leadership and social class or uh, leadership within the field of higher ed and student affairs. And so um, we just um, had some new stuff come out around there too. So really I'm, my research is connected to sort of who I am as a person, but also what I do in my career pathway. So I either identify in those ways or I'm part of career preparation and pathways for folks as being a faculty member. Um, and then the leadership pieces sort of carry through. Um, I worked with leadership um, in my sort of student affairs practitioner life. I work with Leadership, which is a nonprofit organization. So it's all things that I'm living and want to understand better. And so really that's where my research is. And I really, for me, it's about how am I writing things that impact practice? Um, I, mm -hmm. whether or not the field tells me this is okay, I don't care about uh, where it ends up in terms of journals or with what publisher. Like I just want it to be something that is accessible for people to read, that is written in a way that is consumable and that can actually impact practice. So uh, quote unquote impact factor of a journal is less important to me than actual impact that it's being used somewhere. That's really well said. Um, and again, coming from the practitioner background, there is this, uh, you know, once you've done the work, the work is part of what you will continue to do. So mm -hmm. how do you, how do you choose projects? Because we always are given, um, we'll call them opportunities, whether they feel that way or not. Um, but whether it's research or other, you know, service involvement, things like that. How do you choose, okay, this is one I'm going to pursue versus this is one might be a great idea, but it's just not right for me in this moment. How do you navigate that? Not well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be honest about it. <clears throat> not well at all. Um, and, and people pick on me. They're like, do you sleep? La, la, la. Um, and I do. Um, in fact, I slept this morning and I went and did a two-mile walk. Um, and so... Um, I, but I don't, I don't do it well. And so when we talk to students about sort of, um, how do you say no and how do you create this integration or, you know, those sorts of things. And I think I just do it differently than other people. Right. So some people are like, I need to stop hard, stop work at six o'clock PM every night. Right. Like that's not my jam. Like some people say, I don't work on weekends. Also not what I do. Um, and so for me, it's really about, um, how do I create these pockets of time? Um, and it's always been that way. So in my practitioner life too, when they were like, oh, you can take comp hours, like take comp hours on Wednesday afternoon. I'm like, for what? Like, what am I going to go do on a Wednesday afternoon? Like, no, like I want a Monday or a Friday and I can, you know, take a long weekend and go somewhere or um, just block the whole weekend out to be with people I love or, you know, those sorts of things. And so I don't do it well. But, um, and I'm, I'm sometimes thankful when I ask people like, hey, do you want to put in a proposal for this thing? And they're like, oh, I can't do it right now because that gives me an excuse to not do it. Um, and so in some ways I depend on other people to say no so that it gives me permission. Permission is not the right word, but um, gives me the ability to say no as well. Um, and so in some ways, like when reviewers say, oh no, you don't get this grant. I'm like, great, <laughs> I don't have to do it. Or, um, and so, I, and I think part of that is just personality. Like I've always been more so like take, I, I think I have like this, um, my grandparents used to tell me like they had this philosophy, like get it while the getting's good. 
And so like, like to not pursue those things, I think is hard for me. Um, And then I think I also don't, subsequently, I don't take the rejection as hard because the rejection is relief in some, in -hmm. some respects. So, um, so not well, Uh, but I will say that I am drawn to books and book chapters over journal articles. Uh, I prefer the writing style. You have like literal longer amount of words you can use. Mm. Um, You can write in different ways. And so I'm more drawn to those projects. I do write journal articles. It is not my favorite thing, Um, but I do write them. Um, But I'm drawn to like books and book chapters. I'm drawn to things that I know are action-based and not just Mm. talking around the sun sort of based. Um, And so those, when I think about volunteering and those sort of things, like are there things that we can actually do um so like right now i'm running nasa region three's research grant process and i know that's going to make an impact that we're going to give money to people that can they can then go do their research um and so that is valuable to me versus sometimes people are like oh you want to be on this committee i'm like what are we actually going to do if we're just going to sit around and talk don't know if that's for me yeah yeah so what are some projects that you're working on you talked about um the research grant so it could be your scholarship, but it could be something else. What are some projects you're working on right now that are really exciting for you? Yeah, so I am excited about um, the Region 3 research grant. So I'm I'm getting to serve NASPA right now on the faculty, like a dual role in the faculty council, as well as the regional rep um, in the Southeast. uh, So the Saxa region uh, for for faculty. And so that's been fun. And um, Dr. Ryan Miller, who's at UNC Charlotte and I are getting to partner on some things to think about what are some ethical tensions we have in uh, higher ed student affairs graduate programs. Um, so all of that's been really fun. And I also get to work with NASA with their Center for First Gen Student Success, uh, mm-hmm. which has just been a delight um, because um, there are some faculty members in that space. A lot of folks are sort of um, in student facing roles where they are working with first gen students. And so that has been fantastic, but really seeing the center build and blossom from sort of the first year to have like sort of expanded exponentially uh, in the past three years has been really awesome. And Dr. Sarah Whitley and the, the work they're doing there is just uh, amazing. And I'm really proud to be a part of that um, and sort of how they are elevating the conversation around first gen. Um, with ACPA, um, I, I mentioned earlier the Emerging Scholars Group. And so uh, Trisha and Claudia and Keon and uh, Jean and I really have sort of this bond. And so it's been fun to work with them over the past couple of years through our research projects we've done. We are also kicking around some writing together um, and so that's been really fun. And then um, we have two exciting things that are coming out. We have um, yesterday, uh, we had a new directions for student leadership volume issue. I don't, never remember the right word to use uh, that just got released. Um, it's on leadership learning through the lens of social class. And so really pumped about sort of that uh, combination of two of my research interests with leadership and social class. But um, how many people got to write for the text? And a lot of them are some of them are faculty, some of them are practitioners, but just the brilliant minds that were part of that project. Uh, was really fun. So happy to see that in virtual print, I guess. Um, and then um, in next month, uh, Dr. Georgiana Martin and I have a new book coming out called Social Class Supports with Stylist Publishing. Um, and that is a 398 page book. Um, we, we actually, at, we went back to Stylist because we had such good chapter proposals that we doubled the size of the book. Um, and it really is a practice-based book of what is happening um, at two-year, four-year public, private institutions around social class supports. And so I really think that the scalability of that book is going to really help institutions when they say, well, what do we do? And we're going to say, this is exactly what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of across like basic needs and access pieces and academic pieces. And then thinking about intersections of like social class and LGBT or social class and race or social class and former foster youth. Um, so really excited that um, a little bit delayed there from March to May, but really excited to see that in print as well. It's been um, 
sort of a, a love letter in some ways to higher ed of we're here and, and it's elevated in COVID um, of, you know, strains that students are having around social class um, identity and how it's showing up in their higher ed experiences. So yeah, some, some really good stuff there. Yeah, that's exciting. And just in time for people to read it over the summer and put it to work <laughs> this fall. So exactly. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. So when you think about um, your sort of experience into the faculty role, what are some things that have surprised you? Um, things you expected that were different, could be better, could be not better. Um, but what are things that have surprised you about becoming a faculty member? So many. Um, and really my first inkling of it was as a doc student because when I was um, in my first job at Florida State, so I went to Florida State for my master's and I stayed there for my first job and I was advisor to homecoming. And so uh, I, I remember this distinct moment where a faculty member emailed me and was like, oh, I didn't know it was homecoming. And I was like, what are you talking about? We spent $250,000 on promotion. We have billboards, we have banners, we have yard signs. Like there is stuff everywhere. How do you not know it's homecoming? Um, and then as a doc student, I worked in the same building that I taught in, that I took classes in, that I ate my lunch in. And so I really only knew Poe Hall at NC State's campus and then the two libraries that were there. That's it. That's the only place I ever went. And, um, and one day it was student government elections and I saw the yard sign and I thought, oh my gosh, like if I wasn't trained as a student affairs person, I would never even notice this. And that's how faculty members don't know. And so that was my first inkling of like this understanding that faculty life is sometimes a, a solitary, isolating experience. Um, it can be, it isn't always, but it can be. And so even if you're on like a faculty team and like your program has, you know, three faculty or five faculty, um, sometimes they're like ships passing in the night, right? You're writing about different things. You're teaching different things. And so you may only see each other at a meeting, you know, once a week or once a month or like those sorts of things. And so uh, really the shift from thinking about my team in some ways being on my campus, like when I was a director of the office, that was our team. And like, it was sort of this insular team that was all people that were in my space and like that kind of thing. And now really, I think of my team much more broadly um, as folks in the Southeast region who are also faculty members or in North Carolina, we have this consortium of folks who we meet once a month that are all the faculty in North Carolina of higher ed student affairs programs so or people I do research with. And so um, it's really, I think, a shifting in understanding of who's my team uh, has been interesting, right? And so at first I found it really solitary and now I don't feel like it's a solitary, but I think it's because I've had to shift my version um, of sort of who is sort of my teammates um, in this work as well. Uh, I say the other thing that was interesting, and I feel like it was somewhat this way as a, as a practitioner, but um, is that really you make up your own work. Like I create my own work. And so I think, um, I think that's interesting. So like the volume of work is really my decision in some capacities. Like, yes, I have to teach a certain number of classes and I need to sit on some committees and things like that for the university. But like in terms of research and sort of service and like volunteering and things like that, like I make up the, the amount of work that I do. Um, and so I think that that... Um, I love that uh, because you sort of get more control over your work. It's more autonomous. You get to decide if you do it at 8 a.m. or at 8 p.m. Uh, so I love that part of my work. Um, but I think that, um, you know, my mom, <laughs> I always laugh because I, she'll call that, oh, mom, I'm grading. And she'll be like, oh, you, you, you give them too much work. You always grade and you give them too much work. <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, that is sort of a reminder to me like, yeah, like I, I choose like sort of the amount of work that I do. Um, and I think with that, um, you know, people may think it's more or less work than being a practitioner. And I don't think it's more or less. I think it's roughly the same. I think it's just how you do the work, what format you do the work, if you do that work 
in your home, like we've all been working from home lately, but um, if you do that work at home at a coffee shop, actually on campus, like those sorts of things. I think the other thing that surprises people, and I was not surprised because I, mean, I was an ed major my whole life, but um, is that faculty don't get paid what people think they do um, at most places. And so as we look at community college faculty, even regional public, like, you know, um, I am I'm, as six years into my faculty life, I'm making the same amount I was making my last practitioner job, uh, which is $65,000. If we're going to talk numbers, you could look it up anyway. Um, and so thinking about um, some of those pieces that, um, you know, when, when people want to go tit for tat of, oh, well, you don't make any money in student affairs. I'm like, that VPSA is going to make way more than I will ever make uh, as a faculty member. And so I think that's surprising to students when we talk about salaries and like future career trajectories and things like that. I think it's surprising when people are practitioners and think about going back to the faculty and say, oh, I'm going to retire to the faculty or, oh, I'm going to shift and don't realize that shift maybe half their salary. Um, and so I think some of that is surprising for people. Um, and I think the final thing that I continue to grapple with is that <clears throat> a lot of faculty don't know how higher education institutions function. And so like, as you know, budgets were under concern in COVID and things like that, people were saying, oh, we'll just cut athletics. I'm like, it's not even the same kind of money. And so like, um, that I think, like, I think I might, I, I knew that, but like, I never felt it, if that makes any sense. And so uh, as I'm in faculty meetings and people are sort of debating things or bringing things up, I'm like, no, like, that's not how it works. And so I think um, I'm, I'm sort of continually surprised at how many people we have working in higher education who don't know how higher ed, higher ed functions. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you totally set up this last scripted <laughs> question that I oh, had. Um, but if someone was currently in a practitioner role or, or in grad school and thinking about what might be next, um, what guidance or insights would you offer them about making the change? So you talked about um, control of time is, um, I think most of us would say that's a huge benefit of the job. Salary is very real and the longer you're in student affairs, the bigger pay cut you will take to become a faculty member. What, oh, the, the idea of working in isolation or independently versus it seemed like everything was group work in student yes. affairs. Are there other things that you would encourage people either to do or to think about, or even to reflect on themselves and what they need out of their work if they were thinking about um, making the shift? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say one, um, and I mentioned this earlier, how most of us attend doc programs at research-based institutions, right? So doctoral professional university, R2, R1, et cetera. Um, and so I think um, knowing that faculty jobs exist at multiple institutional types, right? So you can have a fruitful faculty career at the community college. You can have a fruitful faculty career at a small private, at a large public, at a regional public, at, you know, sort of different kinds of institutions. And so not to assume that it's it's bad or less than to have a faculty job at a regional public or a small private. Um, it will look different, uh, but that doesn't mean one is better than the other necessarily. And I think we do still harbor a lot of elitism around, it's better to have a job at Boston University where I used to work uh, than at App State where I currently work. And people said that to me when I shifted um, from one, that one institution to the other. And so, uh, knowing that they exist at multiple institutions and knowing what might be the best fit for you, right? I know I like to write books and book chapters. So a regional public institution is a better alignment with what I want to produce in terms of my scholarship. 
Um, it also doesn't hurt to work at a rural institution or a rural located, how about that? Rural located institution and study rurality, right? That doesn't, like that alignment makes sense. And so um, I think knowing that and looking for things that will suit how you want to work and how you want to live versus if you want to, if you want to suit, you know, seek prestige, do it. But if that's your thing, cool. Like, I'm not mad about it. Um, but like knowing what is like important to you and being able to sort of align those experiences, I think it's helpful. Um, I think getting some teaching experience is helpful. Um, I think people value that sort of in the job search process. And so whether it is teaching undergraduate students or co-teaching master's classes as a doc student or um, like facilitation in general, which is sort of a teaching strategy. Um, I think that experience is valuable in the job search process. I think it also sets you up better uh, to start your faculty life um, and not just instruction, but curriculum development. Um, because if somebody says to you, oh, you're teaching X course and maybe they'll hand you a syllabus, maybe, I didn't always get that. Um, and so you're really creating everything. And so how do you create content? How do you create assignments? How do you then instruct those? Um, and how do you do that sometimes on the fly? Because sometimes it's like, oh, you're teaching this class in two weeks. Um, like those sorts of things. So I think the teaching experience, both the instruction and the sort of um, content creation is, is, is helpful. Um, and then I would say explore the market. Um, and I would never tell anybody not to be on the market or try the market, it, but it's a tough market. Um, and so knowing what that means, knowing what you're willing to do and not willing to do, um, you know, because I think sometimes we will give people advice of, well, you have to go anywhere. Well, guess what? People don't want to just go anywhere. And that's more and more the case, I think, that it has been in the past. And so you know, are you willing to go to the West Coast if you're from the Southeast? Are you willing to go to the Midwest if you are from the Northeast? Um, are you willing to go to any institution that has a job? Are you, and so I think um, some of those pieces of exploring the market and um, deciding for yourself what that looks like for you um, and how long you're willing to be on the market um, too. So um, are you willing to do a visiting position? Are you not willing to do a visiting position? Is clinical of interest to you, right? Which means it's more teaching administration than research. Um, and knowing that sometimes if you hold them side by side, they're not that different. So I had a clinical assistant professor position at Boston University, um, and I was teaching five courses, so a three-two teaching load, so five courses over a year. Um, and I was still required to do some research and then have service obligations. So to the program, to the um, college and the university, that is basically exactly my course, my workload at App State. Um, and I'm in a <clears throat> tenure track position at App State. So um, I think some of that too, people think, well, if you're in a clinical role, you will do absolutely no research. Not always true. Um, and, or if you are at a regional public, you know, teaching is valued over everything. Well, it's pretty equally valued across all three um, at my institution. And so exploring the market to see what is of interest to you and what's not. And knowing that uh, you get to choose because people are going to tell you what you should do all the time. Oh, you, could, you should only get a job at R1. Oh, you should only you know, or when I was switching from practitioner to faculty, people said, oh, you're going to the dark side. Well, people on both sides said that. Mm -hmm. Faculty people said that about administration, administration said that about faculty. So everybody's the dark side. And so, um, so some of those pieces as well, because people will be in your ear and say, oh, you really should have been a UPSA. Oh, you really should have been a faculty member. What, what do you, you actually want to do? Because if not, other people are going to push you in that direction and you have to decide what direction you want to go. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to turn the noise down a little bit and find your own answer but excellent well as we're wrapping up is there anything else you would like to talk about or something that you hoped i would ask that you had a great answer for that you're like yeah there's this one other thing anything else that you want to hear um i don't think so i think um you know this podcast is for saxa i've been to saxa i really appreciate the work that saxa does and i feel like a lot of our graduate students um really find a home in saxa and so i would say um, exploring options for people. So maybe it is Saxa, maybe it's not Saxa, but 
sort of finding your your people and your niche uh, sort of in this field, I think is helpful, not only at your institution, but across because maybe you're at an institution where people don't hold the same identities as you or maybe have different interests than you do. And so um, how, <clears throat> sort of how are you cultivating um, your team, your sort of um, go-to people? And so there, I think it's always helpful to have somebody uh, not on your campus who you can call and be like, listen to this shit, right? Like, I think that's really helpful. Um, and people can talk you down and say, it's really not that bad. Like you're being dramatic. Um, or they can say, yeah, that's really bad. Like, you know, what, how are you going to manage that? Um, and celebrate your successes with you too. And so I think um, sometimes those people are on your campus and sometimes those people are not. And I've moved around a whole lot and I don't necessarily think that's good or bad. I think it just is in my career. Um, and that means I've gotten to carry people with me. And so now I have people I can call and, and be sounding boards or talk me down or celebrate with me. Um, and I think that's been really helpful because it, those folks don't have to be on your campus, um, but having folks in the field who understand because my partner's in insurance, my parents, you know, were in blue collar jobs. And so um, somebody who can understand sort of the context a little bit more um, has been helpful. Great. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I know, um, Maybe this was one of those things that you're like, okay, I can't say no to this, but I, I appreciate you saying yes. Um, before we kind of wrap up, is there a quote that you really appreciate or something that you turn to at different times that you would want to share with listeners? Yeah, so um, I'll give you uh, one that is, is a quote, but also uh, a, a cast off of something my grandfather used to say. But um, so my Paul used to always say to me, spend your money on things they can't repossess. Um, and so I've spent my money on my brain and my teeth. That's where the majority of my money in my life has gone. Um, and uh, it, it hearkens for me a quote from B.B. King. Um, and that quote is, the beautiful thing about learning is that nobody can take it away from you. Um, and so whether that is learning with your hands and learning how to change a tire on your car um, or learning, I'm about to learn a whole lot about plants because I'm trying to plant some stuff in my yard um, or academic learning. Um, it's something that people, they, they can't, they can't take away the learning. And sometimes that learning is tough and hard and things we wish we didn't have to learn. And sometimes it's joyful and glorious, but um, really that piece of learning, um, I think for me has been central. That's beautiful. I, I want to share something with you before I, I close for today. So I did an activity in class a few weeks ago and um, they split up into small groups and I said, okay, you need to figure out you're, you're hosting a conference and you need to plan some keynote speakers. So who are you going to invite? And I don't remember if there were, if there were four or five, six groups, but two of them came back and mentioned you. So oh, that's so keep kind. your calendar open because as they move into <laughs> conference planning roles, you might be, be contacted, but oh, that's um, fantastic. I think it says a lot about who you are and, and the approachability of your work. I mean, it speaks to people in ways that they um, can fully engage with it. So again, I, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Um, and uh, your work makes a difference. And so I just thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I um, always love to chat with folks. And so if any of those students wanna just chat with me about anything, I'm happy to do that as well. Um, because for me, it, it really is about approachability and how do we make ourselves human to people because we're all just human beings just trying to do it and we don't always do it right. Um, and sometimes we do stuff that's helpful. Um, but I think that's important for students to see that we're just people. We're not somebody, I, I don't ever want to be on a pedestal because I assure you I will fall off of it. Um, and so uh, how do we humanize ourselves um, for our students, but also our colleagues too? Yeah, wonderful. 
Well, thank you again one more time, Dr. Sandra Ardwin. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Essays, or today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SACSA, and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without my producer, Jen Lowe, at the University of South Florida. Thanks for your support and collaboration, Jen. And I also chose a quote for today. Um, and I chose it thinking about, first of all, it's one of my favorite quotes. And thinking about kind of how I receive your work and how I see you showing up in spaces. But the quote that I chose for today is, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step by Lao Tzu. And um, you got to start, you know, and you might stumble along the way, but if you build the right community, there are people there to always look this up. So my name is Michelle Botcher. Thank you one more time, Sanjay. Absolutely. And it has been a pleasure to host today's episode. Have a beautiful day. My mouse always dies. <laughs>